Welcome to the Engaging Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Frame, and on this week's episode of Expeditions, we're going to finish up our discussion on the betrothal process and kind of look at this survey of how that's operated from Genesis all the way to where we are in Revelation. And we're going to talk about, more specifically towards the end, we're going to get into the scroll and the lamb that was worthy. So I hope you're enjoying it, and let's just jump right in. So, Rick, you're going to have to speak up a little bit. Everybody, when you read, speak up a little bit louder, okay? So, all right, so we're, uh, this is week 39, and we're in Revelation. We're going we're gonna to read verse 5 again, but we're looking at verse 5 and 6, okay? So go ahead, and we'll get rolling. Uh, 5 and 6? Yeah, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. Okay. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Amen. All right, now this is a, these two verses are pivotal. Okay, and we've, we've just spent the last three weeks kind of introducing this idea of, of uh, just the betrothal process in the ancient Hebrew culture, right? And I'm just going to tell you, for me, understanding that process makes way more sense to what's happening here than thinking about, for example, what the futurist position is, that that scroll being a deed of uh, a deed of trust or the, or the or pardon me the title deed for the earth okay so i want to say i'm not telling you that that is not a part of what's happening okay because i think there there is something associated with this title deed concept in a way but i think it's not a primary thing at all I really believe that when we, when we step back and we look at what's happening with the betrothal process, etc., and we bring back in this Jewishness of what's going on, I mean, that Jesus is Jewish and, and the Hebrew uh, components to it, I think we get a much clearer picture, okay? So in remembering that backdrop that we've talked about, in remembering this wedding and in remembering this betrothal process, there's another key thing that we have to recognize. And we do as in the Western church, we do, okay, in one sense. But I think the depth of it, we don't when we're applying it to Revelation and other parts of Scripture. And that is, we're, we're not dealing with any ordinary groom. <laughs> right? I mean, this is not your common groom, even in the Hebrew culture, right? This isn't Joe, this isn't, you know, it, you know I'm not even going to make up. You know, Jewish names. This isn't this isn't John Greenberg. How's that? <laughs> you know, down the street, who's who's marrying my friend across the street, and we're going to have a big wedding. Although the betrothal process is still the same process, we're talking about something far grander taking place. And why? Because this groom is a king and a priest. Now, this is this is incredibly important to really taking in and understanding the scene that we have. Because how in the world do we tie what's about to come? Right? How do we tie what we're about to read, all of these, these just you know, incredible 
things that are about to take place? How do we tie that to a wedding? But yet, we have this, this clear betrothal language and process taking place. We clearly, throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and obviously more clearly in the New Testament, we're, this bridal language, this wedding language, that, that God, I mean, He's the groom. He's the husband, and we're the wife. And this brings great importance to why marriage is so sacred and so important to God and His kingdom plan. You know, I'm actually going to get to share with these pastors and leaders in Uganda here on the 14th and 15th for my next training classes with them. And I've been asked to talk about marriage, to talk to these pastors and leaders about why their wives are important and, and, and all of that. So, so this is one of these realities that is here. So we're, we're dealing with a king and a priest. And this ties big time into what's about to take place. Right? Because if we remember, in order, for the, in order for the groom to come and get his bride, there are responsibilities and roles. There are things that he has to do and take care of, right? We talked about only the father knows, and we read these verses, only the father knows when all of the preparations are ready, and now the groom can go and get his bride and actually have the wedding ceremony and, and, and consummate that marriage. Only the father of the, of the groom knows when, when all of the ketubah has been, been fulfilled and taken care of. So remember, the ketubah is that, that contract. It's that marriage contract, that wedding contract that lays out both sides. So even the bride, we have a role and a responsibility. And it's one of purity. Okay? Well, we can't be pure. And we talked about, hey, what happens on the wedding night when if the, if the, if the groom discovers that, hey, my bride's not a virgin. She's not pure. Well, we talked about there's four possibilities that could take place. And it starts with she, she dies. Okay? We're just going to deal with two of them because the, because the other two don't really matter so much even though they're in there. But it's either she's going to die or he can pay the ultimate price. And he can take what she's supposed to, to have, and he can die on her behalf. What did Jesus do for us? Man, he died on our behalf. And he did that because then there is no question. Because the other two that don't really matter so much, they leave open questions. They could still result in the death of the bride if they're not resolved. But him dying for her resolves it. There are no more questions. And so Jesus died for us. And, and as they were going through, we recognize there's these four cups that they, that they drink, right? The cup of friendship, the cup of bargaining, the cup of inheritance, and then the final cup in the betrothal process, they drink together only at the wedding ceremony. And, that, and that's the cup of praise that ties all of that together. Well, during the cup of bargaining, what are the fathers doing? What are they talking about? They're talking about this is what has to happen. You know, this is she's going to remain pure, etc., etc. You're going to pay X amount of dollars for the, the bride price to purchase her and all this. Well, we get all caught up in the redemption, and the redemption is right on, so don't misunderstand me, okay? But what is he redeeming? And this is where the little nuance comes into play 
that, that I think we have to begin to understand. And understanding that he's a king and a priest helps us do this. The title deed in futurism, and by the way, we're not going to break down historicism, preterism, futurism, and idealism here because they all agree for the most part about what's happening and who the lamb is and what we're going to talk about today. There's just two nuances uh, that exist, and one of them is with the preterist, because the preterist believes this is a court scene, right? And, and they, they're right in there with, hey, what's being handed down is judgment against Israel for all of their disobedience throughout the centuries, and ultimately that's going to result in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's what the preterist thinks. The futurist says... Okay, and, and many, even the historicists see this is a title deed. Well, a title deed means what? I mean, if I've got to take it back, what does it mean? It means what? Yeah, you don't own it. Now, this is where I don't think that's correct. Now, again, this is just me, and part of it, though, and there are many other scholars, I'm not a scholar, there's many other scholars that I respect from different backgrounds who, who believe this too, is that this isn't about a title deed, although that might be in there somewhat, okay? Because think about it, did God ever lose ownership of anything? I mean, really, right? Man, he doesn't. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He, he never lost his ownership to the universe and to the planet and to any of those things, okay? <laughs> Ever. He doesn't need a title deed to get it back. It's already his. So if, if this is true, then we have to think a little bit differently about what's actually happening. And when we recognize that there's a marriage contract, there's a ketubah, and there's terms and conditions that only the father knows are completed and ready, then that makes a lot more sense of, of who is worthy. I mean, can just any groom show up on that day? <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, this bride has been promised to. These things we've promised to, they're promised to one another. And man, you know, Rick can't just decide, hey, you know, I'm the groom today. That can't happen. There can only be one. So even this reality of worthiness and all of that plays into that, okay? And it's not that he has to make himself worthy in order, you know, for us and that in the way that we would think about it. That's not what's going on, okay? It's only, there's only one groom that can pull this off, that can do this. And this kind of, when we begin to grab a hold of this, some other things come into a clearer focus for us. So as the king... Part of this ketubah process, we've seen, what does he have to do? Once the contract is signed, once the horns are blown, they've announced you know, to the world that a marriage contract has, has come to its conclusion, it's written, etc. Now, what does the groom have to go do? He has to prepare a place. He has to go prepare a place. We read the scriptures, right, where Jesus says, hey, where I'm going, you're going to come too, but right now I've got to go and I've got to prepare a place for you, right? My father's house. And what do we see in the betrothal process, in that marriage process? Where does the groom go and add and, and build a place for his bride? Right, it's at his father's house. Okay? So this king, man, his house is a whole lot different. Right? I mean, we're not just talking about a house. We're talking about a kingdom. Right? 
I mean, he's, he's got his kingdom, and he's already told us something. Man, we have seen parables where he reckons himself, and he says, man, the kingdom of heaven is like what? It's like a master who's gone away. This is his description. Hey, remember this, right? It's like a master who has gone away, and he's left his servants in charge. Remember? This is what Scripture says. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what his father's place is like. And he's left his servants in charge. That's what he's done. And what did they do? Because he says, when he left, he didn't give anything up. That's his kingdom. That's his, that's his, his possessions. He didn't say, oh, by the way, I'm losing it, and i got to go and figure, i got to do all this stuff to get it back. That's not what he said. He said, I'm going away and I'm leaving you in charge of it. Where did that happen? <laughs> Man, that's exactly right. Thank you. Go ahead. last time he said, he finished something and says, this is good. He makes it all, right? He creates it all. And he looks and he says, Man, this is good. And what's he do? He hands over dominion. It's in the garden that God and man walk together. God was with us. Man, he would walk in the cool of the morning. He would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he would talk with them. They were in relationship, in physical proximity, day in and day out. And his plan was not that that changed. When he told them, take dominion and go into the world, right? He's saying, I'm here with you. Let's go. This is for you to build with me alongside you and in physical proximity of you. And I've given you everything that you need, but don't do this. And what do they do? They do, they do that. <laughs> they do that. <laughs> right? They do that. So Adam and Eve do the very thing that they're told not to do. And the result is sin, etc. And what does he do? He says, Get out. You can't be in physical proximity with me. You can't be in this close relationship with me. And you no longer have dominion. But did that change that they're stewards and supposed to be servants? No. And this is something that we don't grab a hold of and think about. We, we think we're fallen, we're separated from God. Absolutely, that's true. But yet God was still in relationship with Adam and Eve. Man, Enoch was righteous. Think about this. Enoch was so righteous that he was taken into heaven without even dying. Righteousness existed in a different way than we comprehend, Right? Now, I know this might be startling, but yet go back and read Scripture. Let Scripture speak for itself. And it all looks forward to Christ. Okay, So they're still servants and stewards, albeit a lot harder, and not in the closeness of relationship with God. Okay, Then what do we see? So they go out, they have to sweat, they have to toil, death, and by the way, this is physical death. Is introduced. You're going to die. And why is that? Because you no longer have access directly to the source of life. 
And Scripture says, in Genesis, it says, you have to be, there's a number one reason. Well, the number one reason is what we said. You can't be in relationship with God. But there's another reason God said you got to get out. Because what would they do? That's what Scripture says. Because if they stay there in that state, they'll go and eat from the tree of life and they will live forever in this sinful separation from God. That's what Scripture says. I'm not making that up. Okay? So there is still a level of service. You're on the planet. You still need to go out and take care of it. You still need to find your way. And I'm talking physically. I'm not talking salvation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about physically in the planet. So there's still this sense of servant, this sense of, of stewardship, because now he's gone away. And he's got a plan in place of how he's going to bring it all back. Right? So they fall. Then what happens in Genesis chapter 6? Man, the fallen angels, the rebellion takes place. The fallen angels come down on Mount Hermon. Now recognize something. They didn't walk out of the garden and the next day here's these fallen angels. We don't know how long of a period of time that was. But we know it happened. We know why. And we know from that point, evil just took over. Recognize that. Man, they began to teach forbidden knowledge and all these kinds of things. I mean, they did. And man just went into the mire and the muck. And it led to what? It led to the flood. Now, the flood isn't a renewal of mankind. It's a washing of his creation itself that they're living in. It's a wiping out. And a starting over. But they're not renewed yet in their personal relationship with God. But he renews his covenant that he made with them in Genesis. He, re- he renews that. And then what do they do? I mean, here we go, right? And we know that these fallen angels, their offspring, the Nephilim, we know that they show up again. How and all that, we don't know. But they show up again, and what happens? Mankind goes, oh, wait a minute. We're supposed to disperse, but if we do that, we might be forgotten. I'm using some just really general, modern terms. We might, man, we might be forgotten. And so, what do they do? Hey, let's bring God down to us. And they create the Tower of Babel. And what does God do? We see in, in chapters 10, 11, and 12, well, before we get to 12 and 10 and 11, God says, all right, you know what? Nope. We're going to split the tongues. And then he gives a role to his Elohim, the sons of God. And he creates the nations according to the number of the sons of God. There's a process. And these sons of God are what? They're his servants, stewarding and serving in his creation, in his kingdom, God has never lost control. He's never lost the title deed to possess or own the property. That, these are the reasons I think that's kind of difficult. I mean, I understand, but I think if you leave out the wedding, if you leave out that this is a king and a priest and he's going to prepare a place, and it's in his father's house, so it's never gone away, and we see the end, when we get to the end of Revelation and all that, we know what he's doing, 
And there's going to be the wedding supper of the Lamb. Well, the Tower of Babel event takes place. Then, from the Tower of Babel, they disperse. We've got all these powers and principalities, all this stuff. Man, these sons of God, they rebel. They get haughty. Hey, look, I've got this nation of people that are my responsibility. And so they start having them worship them. And that's where all these gods and pantheons of gods that we have throughout the world and cultures comes from. And then what do they do? Man, that just carries on. It just gets worse and worse. Civilizations grow, people grow, nations grow. And then we get to Jesus. We get to 2,000 years ago. The prophets have been prophesying. Man, Moses looked forward to all these things. And all, all this plan that we know God was keeping a secret. He was telling it the whole time, but keeping it a secret. Because we know. It says in the New, the New Testament, if they had known, if these powers and principalities had known, Scripture tells us they would never have killed Jesus. That's what it flat out says. Okay? They would never have killed him because that would have foiled their plans. Right? And it did. And it did. <laughs> <laughs> right? So Jesus, John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven is what? at hand and Jesus comes rolling up and John says this is the one I told you one greater than me is coming and the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he comes onto the scene and then what's he doing even all of this is part of preparing it's part of the ketubah it's part of the old testament he's preparing even there because what does he need to do this isn't just about redeeming the creation itself and renewing it, it's about redeeming you, his bride. The purchased possession. And he's purchasing you with his blood on the cross so that there is no question. He's squashing it all. And it starts with making sure that his bride is ready to go. So Jesus comes. The kingdom begins to spread, this redemption process, because you and I need to accept him, because not everybody's going to be the bride. Right? Because that's part of the plan. There's a requirement on our side. What do we have to do? We have to believe. And open the door when he knocks. And open the door when he knocks, because he's knocking on every one of our hearts. And we open that door when we believe. Right? And we've talked about all the details around that. Then, when, it, when the time is right, because he's gone, he said, okay, he's died, he was buried, he's resurrected, he's gone to be with the Father. Not permanently, because now the next stage, man, he's redeemed his bride, he's made that way possible, the cup of bargaining, they have had that drink, and now he's gone, and he's doing the next, which is preparing that, that place for us, that kingdom. Man, this scene at verse 5 and 6, because at the end, there's a marriage supper. And we don't know when the groom is coming. That's right. But we know the signs of his coming. Right. We, right? That's right. We know the signs. We don't know exactly when, but we know the signs. Hey, he's coming. It's getting close. Man, they're leaking it out. The signs are there. And he's going to come, and he's going to get his bride, and he's going to bring the final renewal of what? His kingdom. As a priest, he's the lamb. As a, as a priest, 
He's cleaning. He's renewing the temple. Well, the temple we know, man, there's no tent, there's no building that can hold God. He said, you are the temple. We together are the temple. And His creation itself, in a renewed state, is the temple because He's going to be with us, right? So He's the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. Here's where we start reading a bunch of passages of Scripture. So we have this description of this Lamb. Now, I want to say something. Before I get here, I'm going to go ahead and go here. This, to me, explains John's tremendous grief that we read when he's seeing this scene and, the, and, and they're looking in the, in the heavens and saying, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the seal? To me, why was John so, I mean, immediately, just he was so grieved that he wept and he wept and he wept. He wept. Huh? <laughs> he wept. All right, wept, sorry. <laughs> he weeped. <laughs> he wept. <laughs> right? Why, why was he doing that unless he recognized immediately what he's seeing? If he, if he doesn't know, if he doesn't have something to associate, and I don't think he's associating it with a title deed, I think he recognized the scene is the beginning of the wedding. And there's this great wedding for the, the king. And the father's ready, and they're sitting there, and, and the groom is nowhere to be found. Or the groom was killed. Huh? Or the groom something his own life, so he's dead, in theory. Something, right, yeah. I mean, I mean, John's sitting here, and for a brief moment, what's he doing? Scripture tells us he's looking... And he can't, there's no one in heaven worthy. So from his vantage point, it's like, wait a minute, we're here, the bride's ready, the wedding ceremony's about to begin, and the groom is a no-show. You know, like us, when we're at a wedding and everybody's looking for the bride, never had to look for the groom. Right, because he was there, that's exactly right. Man, you knew the whole time where the groom was. He was there. We're all waiting for the bride in great anticipation. In this case, where's the groom? <laughs> to me, that explains how John can have this moment of just incredible grief to the point that he weeps. Because he recognizes the scene. Again, I'm not saying the court aspect and all that isn't part to play because we, we know that that reality is there too. But this is more what's going on. And then what happens? Behold. Yeah, before we go there, though, I mean, in the, in the language, in the scripture, though, that we read, it says, no one in heaven, on earth, or below. Or below. Yeah. Nowhere in the creation. Where was he? Where was he? I just don't, I, I just, I just don't see that being a title deed in a courtroom scene, being able to explain all of that. Because inherently within the marriage process is this redemption <laughs> that takes place. So somebody grab Genesis chapter 49. We're going to start passing out passages. All right. So we have this line of Judah, root of David. So this kingdom language is, is right here, right? 
So go ahead. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? And we know the prophets talked about this lion of Judah, and it's tied directly, title-wise, all those things to this Messiah that they're expecting. And what were the Jews expecting? Were they expecting... What were they expecting? <laughs> they were expecting the Lion of Judah to come roaring in and reestablish Israel's kingdom and authority. That's what they're expecting. And that all the nations were going to serve Israel. That shows you how far they fell from what God's purpose back in Exodus was for the nation of Israel. You're to be a kingdom of priests. 